Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 as we begin this morning. Page 1137 if you're using a pew Bible. Boy, I sure am glad to be here preaching to you this morning. I had an opportunity this week. I was asked to preach in the chapel at the Master's Seminary. They're uh, having budget problems, and so they were looking for, uh, for somebody who would um, be able to do it for cheap, uh, like free. So, no, I'm just teasing. It's their 25th anniversary, and they've asked various alumni that are located in the local area to come back and preach. And so that was really a great honor. I had agreed to do it a year ago and seemed like a good idea at the time. And then, uh, then when the day came, I was thinking, oh, wow, do I really want to do this? Sitting there, there's 400 seminary students. They all have the Greek New Testaments out. And, you know, you got the faculty sitting there. And everybody's like this. I don't know what the deal is. You know, so I'd much rather be here with you. Much rather be here with you. But God enabled and we were able to, to bring something from the Word, from the book of Romans. It's about the only thing on my mind in these days. And so, so uh, it was good. I think it was helpful to them. We're continuing here in Romans chapter 14, titling this whole series of messages, Living Free in Christ. Living Free in Christ. And we will be looking this morning at verses 4 through 12. 4 through 12. You know, over the past hundred years or so, there have been many, many, many issues that have really inflamed the passions and divided Christians with regard to their strongly held views about certain lifestyle choices and behaviors. People believe vigorously or or promulgate vigorously the things that they believe deeply and they can end up making them tests of Christian orthodoxy. There are a number of them. I want to give you kind of a quick list that came to my mind of of things that unfortunately what has happened when that situation arises is that churches become divided. Christians become set at odds against one another over, again, something that is deeply believed in, deeply held as a conviction and vigorously promoted one towards another, but it it becomes a separation in the body. It can become to the point where they're actually going at each other, hammer and tongue. And it really is a, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And we are filled with the Spirit of Peace, we as His children. And so when a Christian fellowship can't exist together in peace, something's wrong. Over the years and last hundred years or so, these are issues that have really strongly divided people. In the area of politics, the whole issue of involvement and non-involvement. Kind of, I'm going to just kind of talk about extremes. That is, some that believe that as Christians we should be completely involved in, in politics. Others believe that politics are evil and that we should have nothing to do with them. And so those two views just begin to bump heads. Even down to political parties, Democrat, Republican. You know, God's not a Republican and God's not a Democrat, right? We know that. He's not even an independent. Can you imagine that? That's because God knows what he believes. No, I'm just teasing. So, wasn't in the notes, you know, one of those things. He's not a tea partier either, but (laughs) people have strong views. They have strong views. The whole issue of personal appearance. Wow. How about hairstyles? Lengths of hair for men and women. Makeup or no makeup. Pants versus dresses. Formal versus informal clothes to come to church. By the way, I can remember as a boy when, when our parents took us to church, my mother had matching hat, shoes, and uh, purse, and she wore gloves to church. 
It was formal in those days. So formal versus informal has divided Christians. The issue of head coverings or no head coverings has divided Christians. The whole realm of parenting philosophies have divided Christians. There are those that advocate family planning and those that advocate open womb. Others demand feeding versus scheduled feedings of their children. Homeschool, Christian school, public school, oh, those are reasons that people will get in each other's face. Youth groups versus family integrated ministry. There's another one where their passions run very deep, very deep. Or how about this one? Music. Oh, music. Don't go there. That's the third rail. Right? How about instruments versus no instruments? Instruments versus no instruments. People have strong opinions. Or hymns versus praise choruses, right? Or how about this one? Those that believe we should only sing the Psalter. We should only sing psalms. Versus those that believe it's okay to sing written hymns of men. How about hymn books versus projector screens? How about organ and piano versus guitar and drums? People have strong opinions. How about in our recreational choices? Movies or no movies? Television or no television? Card playing or no card playing? Dice or number cubes? Dancing or no dancing. Lifestyle choices. Alcoholic beverages or no alcoholic beverages. Tobacco or no tobacco. Simplicity versus comfortability. I can remember in the 1970s when I got saved, there was a a book entitled Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger that was really strong about the need for the American church to live a far more simplified lifestyle and to give the money to the poor. There was another book that was published called Productive Christians in the Age of Guilt Manipulators. That was a response to that original book. Yeah. That just gives you an idea how deeply people feel about these things. How about technology, use of the Internet or no Internet? Or my favorite, the iPhone versus the droid. (laughs) People have strong opinions. I don't know if a church is divided over that yet, but unfortunately, give it time. Give it time. There's just a lot of things that people feel strongly about. And Paul has some really important advice for us. It's more than advice. It's apostolic commandments to us as we live together in a body. How do you go about resolving these things? And, you know, I'm obviously not putting iPhones and droids on the same levels as some of these others. But, but people have strong opinions, very strong opinions. So how do we do it? Do we just have churches that, where everybody is the same? Is that the, re, is that the resolution? We just or gather ourselves, you know, I just want people like me. I only want people like me in the church. And you, you have your own church with people like you. Is that, is that what it's, the New Testament is really teaching us? We know the answer to that, don't we? It's not. Look at what Paul has to say. We'll just pick it up in verse 1, chapter 14. Now accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another. To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will. 
For God is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again... Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Last week, as we introduced this chapter, we said that there are six lessons, six lessons that we can gain from this chapter, lessons that we must learn and we must practice or implement here within this local fellowship. And and we must do this for a very simple reason. We must do this so that we don't rupture the unity of the body of Christ here at Foothill. God is extremely serious about the unity of His church. Christ died to purchase His church. He shed its own blood. And He's gathering believers together in local congregations. And so for us to attack the work of the Spirit is a very serious thing indeed. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful as we go through this. We need to be careful that we, that we listen We need to be careful that the Spirit of God, we will let Him talk to us through His Word. Bring conviction where conviction is necessary. Repentance where repentance is necessary. Forgiveness to be either extended or received where necessary. So that when we stand or sit together and, and we take the bread and the cup, right? That we proclaim the Lord's death until He come. We take communion together. The unity of the church is a big deal. Last week, we looked at lesson number one. We said we need to value that unity of the church. That was verses one through three. We need to value the unity of the church. And, and we noted there were two aspects to that. This is just review for you. It's on the back of your bulletin, by the way, if you want to follow along. But we said that, that we need to, the strong must welcome the weak. We value the unity of the church first by the strong opening their arms wide to bring in the weak. Welcome the weak. And secondly, verse 3, we noted that Paul says we're not to look down on each other. We're not to look down on each other. That brings us to the second lesson for this morning. Our focus for this morning is, is this lesson. Here it is. Jesus, remember this, Jesus is your Lord, not man. Let me say it again. Jesus, remember this, Jesus is your Lord. Not man. Not man. You will give an account to him. To him. So, like last week, this this important lesson has two aspects as well. Two aspects. The first one is is simply this. Verses 4 through 8. Develop your own convictions before the Lord and stick to them. Develop your own convictions before the Lord and then stick to them. Stick to them. Paul begins here by a simple word to the weak. He's addressing the weak Christian here in this context, verses 4 and 5. And simple word is this, mind your own business. Okay, that's it. Mind your own business. Look, who are you to judge the servant of another? Who are you to judge the servant of another? Servant, 
oikates in the Greek. It means a, a household servant. It's not a doulos. It's not a bond servant. It's a, it's a household servant. It's one who worked in the household of their master. This is hard for us to understand. We, we live in a Republican society. This nation was founded as a Republican kind of nation, which means that we don't have a monarchy over us. We don't really understand, at least in an official sense, classes and servant classes and those kinds of things. They're, they're foreign to our thinking, but they're very much part of the New Testament. Slavery was very much part of the ancient world. The historians tell us about a third of the population of the major cities of the ancient world were slaves. About a third of the population. The source of most slavery in those days was, it came in one of two ways. It was either prisoners of war. So if you were captured as a prisoner of war, you would come back as a slave. Or people would voluntarily sell themselves into into slavery for financial reasons. Maybe they had a a debt obligation they couldn't repay, and so they would sell themselves and sometimes their children into slavery until the debt was paid off and then they could be released. Or sometimes they were just so poor and circumstances were so difficult for them that they would sell themselves into servitude so that a master would take care of them. He would feed them, he would clothe them, he would house them, he would provide for them. So people would sell themselves and their children for that purpose. Others would sell themselves as a, as a financial enterprise. They would sell themselves, receive a sum of money, set the sum of money aside, work out the number of years of the servitude, and then they would have opportunity to be released. And in the meantime, that sum of money would have been invested and would have grown and, and provided a financial nest egg for them to now live a, a, a higher econo- at a higher economic level than they could have otherwise. So people would actually sell themselves into slavery for the purpose of their own financial future. It's very different than our world. Very different. Now, in the ancient world, this is important to notice, in the ancient world, it was uniform that slaves were not legal persons. They were not legal persons. That is, that they could not contract for a legal marriage. They could not contract for a legal marriage. They could not represent themselves in court, and they could not inherit property. Okay? You could not inherit property. You could not represent yourself in court, and you could not legally marry as a slave. But nonetheless, they were found at almost every level of society. Quote here from the, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, and I quote, Household slaves served not only as cooks, cleaners and personal attendants, but also tutors, physicians, nurses, managers, salesmen, and contracting agents. And so in a, in a great sense, that what we would call the, mercant, the mercantile class was a slave class. It would not be uncommon at all for a slave to, to represent their wealthy owner at various business transactions or even oversee their entire estate. So many were held in very high regard and were highly educated. Of course, if you were captured as a prisoner of war, you could have been a very highly educated individual prior to your capture. Because these household servants were very highly valued and they were trusted, they were trusted parts of the the household, it, it would be unthinkable for me to criticize your household servant. That's the idea Paul's talking about here back in verse 4. Who are you to judge the household servant of another? I mean, if the master sends him out on business and he's, he's doing the business the master sent him to do and the master's happy with his job performance, who in the world are you to criticize him? This would not be lost on the church here at Rome. They would understand this kind of, this kind of situation. The kind of outrage, moral outrage, really, that you would, that you would judge another person's servant. You'd criticize their servant. You would think that their conduct doesn't measure up to you. Who are you? Who cares whether you think it measures up or not? They're not your servant. I was trying to think of a modern example that would work. 
So I thought of one. I don't know if it works. You'll have to tell me this yourselves. But think of it this way. Your neighbor's kid is mowing his parents' lawn. He's mowing the front lawn. And you watch him mow the lawn, and you don't like the way he does it. You think it ought to be done diagonally in both directions. And he mows it straight across and leaves a couple of tufts along the way, right? But his parents are happy with the job he does. It's fine with them. Would you have any right to go over there and say to your neighbor's son, hey, that's not how the lawn is mowed. That's not acceptable. This is how you mow a lawn. You mow it diagonally in this direction. Then you turn around, you mow it diagonally in the other direction. I want it to look like the outfield at Angel Stadium. What would your neighbor say to that? What would you say to that if someone criticized your son that way? Mind your own business. That's exactly what you would say, right? As long as I'm happy with the job he's doing mowing the lawn, who in the world are you? You mind your own business. Mind your own business. And that's exactly what Paul says here. These are strong words. You know, behind the, the weak believer's criticism of the strong here, and don't miss this, there's a, there's a presumption that what the strong believer is doing is wrong and disapproved of by God. See, it's, it's more than just their conviction now. It's, it's spilled over into, it's my conviction, and it's thus saith the Lord. See, so now it's moved from out of the realm of personal conviction into the realm of sin. You're, you're sinning. You must stop this. Look at the verse. To his own master, he stands or falls. The idea here is he, he stands in favor with or he falls out of favor with. Paul says, stand he will. Why? Look at the verse. Why? But the Lord is able to make him stand. See? See, what, what Paul is doing here when he, he rebukes this kind of judgmentalism is, is he's saying, listen to me now. It doesn't matter whether you approve or disapprove. What matters is whether his master, whether Christ approves or not. That's all that matters. And you don't really have to concern yourself of whether the person participating in this behind of behavior or not participating in this kind of behavior is somehow going to fall from grace because you know what? The grace of Christ is big and powerful and he will stand. He will stand because Christ will make him stand. He'll make him stand. Listen. The power of grace is sufficient to sustain the people of God. This is huge. Paul goes on. One man regards one day above another. uh, Another regards every day alike. Let every man be fully convinced. Notice that. Fully convinced in his own mind. Another, evidently, another point of contention here in in the community there in Rome Paul says, uh, you know, you, you not only just have the right to your own convictions, take a look at that verse again. You have an obligation to form your convictions. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, we don't know exactly what the problem was. There's a differences of opinion. We think, probably best, my best guess anyway, is that it's, that it's talking about feast days or Sabbath days. And whether they should be celebrated or not, are they obligatory or not? It troubled the early church. It's, it has troubled the church of Jesus Christ through the, through the centuries. What about the Sabbath? Is, let me ask you a question. Is Sunday the Sabbath? Is Sunday the Sabbath? Does the Bible prescribe and or forbid certain activities on Sundays? Some believe it does. Others are convinced it doesn't. Is it okay for to go shopping on a Sunday? Is it is it okay to go to the movies on a Sunday? Is it okay to to play baseball on Sunday? When I was little, the only thing that was okay to do Sunday afternoon was sit home and practice gluttony. <laughs> right? Big Sunday dinner. And then sit around. 
Is it? Let me ask you this. Is it legitimate? Is it legitimate to have a worship service on a Saturday night? Ooh. Now we're messing with the Trinity, right? (laughs) We laugh. People have strong opinions. Can we disagree in these matters and still fellowship together? Wow. Paul says here, verses 4 and 5, that a weak believer, mind your own business. That's his word to the weak. He goes on, verses 6 through 8. And he makes another observation. This is key. In fact, they're all key in here. We can't miss any of them. But this one's important. Until I say the next one's important. But this one's important. It's the glory of Christ that has to be our motivation. This is not a free-for-all. As we, as we work through these principles together in chapter 14, one thing I want to communicate, really two things I want to communicate to you. Number one, sin is not a matter of personal opinion. Okay, I said that about eight times yesterday, or last week. I'm saying it again at least twice this week. Sin is not a matter of personal opinion. Okay, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. But the second thing that I want to say is that we need to work through all of these principles and see how they all come to bear on this topic. And it's, it is not just unrestrained freedom. Living free in Christ is not just not unrestrained freedom. In fact, what Paul says here, verses 6 through 8, is that it's the glory of Christ that is our motivation. One man, verse, excuse me, verse 6, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. You see it over and over again. It's for the Lord. It's for the Lord. He gives thanks to the Lord. So the motivation behind all of this is the glory of Christ. That's why Paul is granting the the benefit of the doubt to both parties here in the disagreements in the church. And he's saying there that you do what you do out of thanksgiving to Christ. And if you're doing what you're doing out of thanksgiving to Christ, go for it. Go for it. What is the reason that people refrain or partake in certain behaviors that are not, that are not universally agreed are okay? Why do they do that? Is it for the glory of Christ or is it for their own personal desires? See, that's where it starts to get down into the, into the heart of the issue. Well, Paul's attributing the, attributing the best of motives here. And, he, and he's really saying for the believer is that all of your life, everything you think, everything you do, all your motivations, all your activities, they need to be for the glory of God. Because you're not your own. Right? You were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. We're not our own. So whether we live, whether we die, in life, in death, it's for the glory of Christ. So develop your own convictions and stick to them. Because they are a means by which you express your gratitude to Jesus Christ. So, if you have a Facebook account, have a Facebook account for the glory of God. And be thankful. Oh, Lord, I am thankful that you have enabled to be created this modern communication tool called Facebook. It gives me an opportunity to get a a peek into the hearts of many people that ordinarily I would not know much about or have any insight into what they're thinking and doing. And so as as a shepherd of the people of God, oh, Lord, I am thankful for this modern convenience that enables me to just a little more effectively shepherd the people of God. For those who think Facebook is bad, they can say, oh, thank you, God, that I do not have a Facebook. (laughs) Thank you that you have given me so many things to do in life and that I am so busy that I do not have time to partake in this. But I thank you for the things that you have given me, Lord, and, and I desire to give myself fully to those particular areas of life and ministry. And I rejoice in the situation I have in life and thank you for it. And then we have people on Facebook and people who aren't. Have your own conviction. Have it before the Lord. 
and let it be derived out of gratitude for Christ and His grace. Now, at this point, somebody may well be thinking or, or even willing to ask this question. If, what if somebody chooses something contrary to the will of God? If we really live in an environment with that kind of free-flowing, lavish grace, people are going to take advantage of it. They're going to do all kinds of things they shouldn't do. I'm not comfortable with that much grace. How about a little law? Just to keep the fences around them. I mean, what if somebody... What if somebody develops the wrong conviction? What if their conviction really is sin? Or what if their behavior is not a conviction developed from an attitude of gratitude, but is merely a covering for their sin? That is, they do what they do because it appeals to their flesh and they want to do it. Can we really afford to live in that kind of an environment where we say, hey, it's your conviction? Sounds dangerous, doesn't it? Well, to those of us who are worried about such things, Paul has a very comforting statement to make. Comforting and confronting, I suppose. Verses 9 through 12. And what he says is, our convictions are not entirely private. They are not entirely private. We will give an account someday for our beliefs and our actions. See, this is the beauty of this whole this whole section. Really, you can boil it down to this. It is not unrestrained freedom. There will be an accounting for people's freedom someday for the choices they make, for the behaviors they exhibit, for the activities they participate in. But guess what? You're not the one to give them the accounting. It's Christ. We have to leave it to Him. And so that's what Paul develops here, beginning in verse 9. Very simply, he starts with the statement that Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Verse 8, Paul says, Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. The reason we are the Lord's is because Christ died, verse 9, and rose again in order to purchase the church with His own blood and to establish His rule over it. It is His death and resurrection. That's what's being talked about here. Verse 9, He died and lived again. His death, burial, resurrection that unequivocally establishes His claim to the sovereign position over the church. It establishes His deity. It establishes His saviorhood. And it establishes His universal dominion that is all established there, the resurrection. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, listen to the words of Peter. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Or one that is well known, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, after speaking of the humiliation of Christ through the the incarnation and the cross, Paul then goes on to say, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What establishes that reality? It is his resurrection from the dead. It is his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is Lord. And as Lord, verses 10 through 12, as sovereign, He will judge. He will judge us. Verse 10, Paul again, returning to the theme, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, turning to the strong now, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Reason for my question? Because we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. See, let God be God. Let Him do what He is going to do. He can make His servants stand. Don't worry about that. And let Him judge. For He is the Sovereign One. 
This is the trouble. This was the trouble of the church here. They were unwilling to defer to one another. Unwilling to allow Christ to be Lord. Picture here, by the way, in verse 10 is really interesting, I think. You, why do you judge your brother? You again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? I get that. I get the idea of like a, a school principal. Bring, brings two kids into the office and he sits one here and one here. He looks at the first one. He says, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look on your brother with contempt? Just kind of back and forth, right? Imagine how this letter must have must have come to them as it was read publicly. There are the two groups in the congregation, one judging, one looking contemptuously on the others. And, and here's the Apostle Paul and the words are coming to them. Listen to me. Why do you do that? And you, why do you do that? Don't you know that Christ is your judge? Can't you wait for him? The judgment's coming. The judgment is coming, right? We'll all stand, the end of verse 10, before the judgment seat of Christ. When the weak judge, when the strong look down with scorn and contempt, what they're doing is not only premature, it's, it's not only that they're judging before the time, but they're usurping the authority of Christ. That's why this thing is so serious. Jesus is Lord, not me and not you. And Jesus will judge. He has said he will do it. And he will judge perfectly. And you can't, and nor can I. So have your own convictions, hang on to them, develop them before the Lord. But back off and let God deal with his own servants. Verse 10. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. When? When will that happen? Well, it, it happens. It happens when the church is raptured and brought to glory. The Bible calls it the, the Bema, B-E-M-A, Greek word coming over into the English, pronounced Bema, the Bema seat judgment. A Bema was a, a raised platform known in the ancient world where judging of athletic contests happened from. The person, the, the winners of the contest would come forward, the judge would sit there, and then they would award the crowns, Stephanos, to those who were victorious. The Bema is translated judgment, the judgment seat. Now, only Christians, only followers of the Lord Jesus Christ appear before the Bema seat. Those who do not know Jesus Christ, the lost, the unbelieving, those for whom he is not their savior, they appear at what is called the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. I won't turn there for time's sake, but it describes that very terrifying judgment. A very terrifying judgment where there the, the unbelieving world is judged one by one, individual by individual, for all of their deeds. And they are compared to Christ's perfect righteous standard. They are found wanting, and since there is no Savior for them, they are cast eternally into the lake of fire. The great white throne. But for, for those who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will not appear at that great white throne. But that doesn't mean our lives are not evaluated and are not judged. We still appear and we will appear at what is called this judgment seat, this Bema seat of Christ. And the purpose of the judgment is not to determine our eternal destiny. That was determined in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the judgment is to evaluate our lives as his servants. As his household servants, it is to be called to account for how we spent our lives. Our deeds, our motivations, our character is all evaluated there by Christ. And it is evaluated for the purpose of rewarding faithful behavior. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
But it's not going to all be a bowl of cherries because for every single one of us, we will suffer a measure of loss. We will suffer a measure of loss. And the reason we will suffer a measure of loss is because of the worthless things or the self-glorifying things that we have done in this life. Let me show you a couple of passages. Maybe we'll nail this down for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Page 1157. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It's a key verse. Put a little mark in your Bible. Don't miss this one. Go back to it. Think about it. Paul writes here, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat. The word is Bema of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. He's not talking about a moral evil here. He's talking about a worthlessness. That our deeds will be evaluated. They were good. They were profitable. They contributed to the glory of Christ or they were worthless. They did not contribute to the glory of Christ. Or they were deeds that outwardly attributed to the glory of Christ but were done for self-glorifying motives. Here at this judgment seat in which each and every one of us who knows Christ as our Savior will appear someday by ourselves. He will evaluate us right down to the depths of the motives of our heart. He knows why we do what we do. We're back to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Page 1142. We'll pick it up in verse 10, actually. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Same page, 1142. Paul writes, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire will itself test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, direct application here, he's talking about those who are building the church upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. But we are all involved at some level and some degree in the building of the church of Jesus Christ, right? We are called to go into the world and do what? Make disciples. We are called to make disciples. So we are all involved in church building at some level. And what Paul says is that what we do will be evaluated. It will be evaluated. And we will be rewarded or not based upon the quality of the work. Listen to me. Ever since the beginning, ever since the beginning, people have had differing convictions. We see it here in the church in Rome 2,000 years ago. Strongly held opinions. There are strong opinions here in our local fellowship right here. We don't all agree on everything. We hold some things pretty close. And that's okay. In fact, it's good. Develop your conviction. Develop it from the Scripture. Develop it out of a desire to glorify and, gratify and, uh, and be thankful to God for what He has done for you. Celebrate His grace in your life. But don't judge each other. It's not for me to judge you, and it's not for you to judge me, and it's not for us to judge each other. Wait. If you think your brother's conviction is wrong, you think that God doesn't approve of it, you think his motives perhaps in doing it are suspect, wait. Christ will take care of him. Christ can see right into his heart. Did you know that? I got new glasses recently. You guys in the back row now. 
I can see your face. I can't see if your eyes are open. Your eyes open back there? Give me a little wave. Yeah, okay, good. I got new glasses because before that I couldn't see beyond the fourth row. I didn't want to tell you that because I didn't afraid nobody would come. <laughs> but now I can see. But even with my new glasses, you know, I thought I had to get a large print Bible. I was telling my wife, I said, you know, honey, I think I could get one of those large print Bibles. She said, you can't see? And I said, I can't even see my Bible. She said, when's the last time you've been, had your glasses checked? And I said, uh, I think it's four years ago. She said, why don't you try that first? Good idea. <laughs> Amazing. My Bible, I can, I can see it again. So, so I got new glasses, but you know what I can't see? I can't see into your heart. I can't see inside your heart. I've been married for 31 years. I know that woman better than anyone knows her, but I still can't see inside her heart. I don't know why people do what they do. And neither do you. Neither do you. So we need to just pull back a little bit and be willing to to rejoice in the grace of Jesus Christ who saved us by grace through faith without works and sustains us by grace through faith without works. And be content to let Him sort it all out at the end. Let Him sort it out. Let's glorify God together in this in this new year, this new academic year, beginning here in September, let's just glorify, let's glorify Him together in our diversity. Let's celebrate the grace of God in our lives, that He has saved me and He has saved you, and, he, and we're different. But we're still saved, and we're still brothers and sisters together, and we're still all in one body together, and we love each other. And we can even celebrate our differences. Because the grace of Christ is powerful. And he's our Lord, not man. The Apostle Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, you refrain from passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to Him from God. Let's let God be God, huh? That's basically what Paul is saying. Let God be God. And let us rejoice in the grace of our salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have the grace of salvation. You... You might know something about Christ. Or you may know a lot. But it's still academic. It's still a theory. It hasn't really traveled the 18 inches from your head to your heart. It hasn't really changed you. Today is the day. Today is the day for you to call out on Christ to save you. To experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ who redeems you from your sin and sets you free to live for His glory. Today's your day. I would love to talk with you. I'll be down front here, right? Right as we close this service. You come down and you see me. Come on down and see. Don't worry about what anybody thinks. You know what? They're not thinking about you anyway. They're thinking about lunch. Oh, there's people milling around. It doesn't matter. You come down. Come on down and see me. Let, me. let me open the Bible up with you. Let me show you how you can clearly know the Lord Jesus Christ and, and He can set you free. Jesus Himself said, You shall know the truth. And the truth shall what? Set you free. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for the grace. The grace that has been lavished upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice. 
The floodgates of heaven have been thrown wide open for us, O Lord. We can come boldly into your presence in the name of the risen Savior. And we can experience forgiveness, deliverance, and release. We are no longer under the bondage of sin. We are no longer under the domination of the flesh. We are no longer tossed to and fro, attempting in our own strength to be right with our Creator, and yet, at the end of the day, frustrated, broken, hurt, and discouraged again. Oh, thank You, dear God, that upon Jesus Christ You poured forth Your wrath, that our sin was entirely crushed there. That when you crushed Him, you crushed our sin and our guilt. And that by simply coming with childlike faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is who He says, and that He died and rose again the third day, that He has conquered death, that He has life everlasting, and that He will willingly give that life to any who will receive it by faith. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you have made me a recipient of that grace. I thank you that you have made my brothers and sisters here a recipient of that grace. I pray, oh, Lord, that you would extend that grace even this morning to that one who is here, who desperately needs it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.